On the evening of September 21st, 1956, Nicaraguan despot Anastasio Somoza Garcia was in the highest of spirits. Somoza, called Tacho by just about everyone, had ruled Nicaragua for nearly 20 years and showed no signs of slowing down. Keeping up the flimsiest pretense of a democracy, Somoza had recently accepted the presidential nomination from the Nationalist Liberal Party. Of course, the NLP was his personal party, just as surely as Nicaragua was his personal fiefdom. Gorged on power, food, wine, and women, Somoza had ballooned up to 225 pounds, But that didn't stop him from dancing the night away at the Casa del Obrero, a club in western Nicaragua. Drunk on fun, he was too busy to notice when a young man with a pencil mustache approached him on the dance floor and pulled out a snub-nosed revolver. The young man was 27-year-old poet Rigoberto Lopez Perez. He shot the Nicaraguan dictator four times. Perez would never get the chance to explain why he did it. Within seconds, Samosa's bodyguards were on him. They shot and beat him to death right there on the dance floor. But the truth was, Perez didn't need to explain why he assassinated Samosa. Nicaraguans, for the most part, hated him. They could breathe a sigh of relief now that he was gone. The dictator's sons, Luis Somoza de Baile and Anastasio Tachido Somoza de Baile, soon took their father's place. Still, no one was too worried. They assumed it was impossible for the sons to be as authoritarian as their father. Unfortunately, they were wrong. Dead wrong. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we've been looking at post-World War II Central American and Caribbean dictators Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, Efrain Rios Montt of Guatemala, and Anastasio Somoza de Baile of Nicaragua. This week, we're diving into the rise of the Somoza dynasty in Nicaragua, which ruled for nearly four decades while protecting U.S. economic interests. We'll explore how Anastasio Somoza Garcia seized power in the 1930s, plundered Nicaragua, and left the country to his two sons, Luis and Tachido, as if it were their personal kingdom. Next week, we'll examine how Somoza's youngest son, Anastasio Tachito Somoza de Baile, alienated virtually every interest group in the country, and how, at the same time, he fought a bloody years-long war against a rebel group known as the Sandinistas. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
with a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Officially, Nicaragua gained its independence from Spain in 1821. But true self-determination was elusive. From its inception, Nicaragua was under the thumb of foreign powers. And by the 1890s, it was American business interests which dictated Nicaraguan domestic policy. That didn't mean Nicaragua wasn't going to put up a fight. The president at this time, José Santos Zelaya, did not want his country stuck under the sway of the Colossus of the North. He was an aggressive leader, willing to back up his goals with force. Of course, since Central America was, and still is, vital to American trade interests, Washington bristled at Zelaya's combativeness. So they began looking for ways to remove him. The opportunity presented itself in 1909. That year, Zelaya's political opposition launched a rebellion from the Mosquito Coast. The U.S. sent troops to support the rebels, and Zelaya went into exile. Zelaya was replaced by a man named Adolfo Diaz. The only reason he became president was because Washington wanted it. Widespread opposition to Diaz sprung up quickly, and he asked the U.S. for help. Once again, the U.S. decided Diaz was the best man to support American interests, so it sent Marines. The military muscle did the trick this time, and Diaz remained in office until 1917. According to historian Walter Lefebvre, the very structure of Nicaragua was shaped and controlled by North American bankers and soldiers. Diaz's power was determined more in Washington than in Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. With such distant puppet masters, perhaps it's no surprise that over time, Nicaragua's political situation remained unstable. In 1926, Emiliano Chamorro overthrew the government, which sent the country into turmoil. Washington first tried to mediate peace between the liberals and conservatives. When that didn't work, they once again sent in the Marines, and Chamorro eventually backed down, and Diaz was reinstalled as president. This wouldn't be anywhere near the last time the U.S. meddled in Nicaraguan politics. Shortly after Diaz reassumed the presidency, Juan Bautista Sacasa, the previously deposed vice president, decided he was going to take power back. 
and he was going to do it with Mexico's help. Washington, concerned about seeing its influence replaced by revolutionary Mexico, decided to intervene once again. As more U.S. Marines landed in Nicaragua, diplomat Henry Stimson became something of America's viceroy in the country. Stimson forced Chamorro to step down and Adolfo Diaz was reinstalled a third time. Stimson also moved to suppress Chamorro's opponents, Sacasa and the opposition army. Ultimately, only one officer refused to lay down his arms, a soldier in his early 30s named Augusto Sandino. Sandino came from a wealthy family and had worked for multiple American corporations. But as an ardent nationalist and anti-imperialist, Sandino had come to the conclusion that American forces had to be driven out of Nicaragua. The U.S., however, didn't see Sandino and his guerrillas as a big enough threat to stick around for. Considering that the bulk of the country had been pacified, U.S. Marines trained a new native police force to take their place. The Guardia Nacional, or the National Guard. By 1929, Washington believed that the National Guard was strong enough to protect U.S. interests and finish off Sandino on its own. It began the slow process of withdrawing troops. Finally, in 1933, the American occupation officially ended. Presidential elections were held in 1932, and ironically, Juan Sacasa won. The exiled vice president's overtures to Mexico had sparked an increase in U.S. influence over five years prior. Now, he was in power. Meanwhile, Augusto Sandino was still at large. However, since his primary goal was expelling the Marines, he was willing to negotiate with the new Nicaraguan government. In February 1934, Sandino and Sacasa began talking peace. Until on February 21st, shortly after leaving a meeting, Sandino was suddenly grabbed by National Guard soldiers, taken into a field, and shot. The man responsible for the execution was the National Guard's commander, General Anastasio Somoza Garcia. Somoza had been born to a moderately wealthy family and had spent some time in the U.S. studying in Philadelphia and learning to speak fluent English. Throughout the 1920s, Somoza made himself indispensable to diplomat Henry Stimson by acting as his translator. Based on that qualification alone, he was chosen to lead the National Guard despite zero military training. He was, however, proving to be a shrewd leader. In February 1934, after orchestrating the execution of Augusto Sandino, Somoza easily dispersed the rest of the rebels. Once they were out of the way, Somoza realized that he and the National Guard were the only powerful force in Nicaragua. It's unclear exactly when he decided to seize power, but considering that Somoza was ambitious, cunning, and ruthless, it was likely planned well in advance. What we do know is this. In May 1936, Somoza led 2,000 troops to a fort in Lyon 
and demanded its surrender. Within eight days, President Juan Sacasa resigned and Somoza took over the country. In the months that followed, Somoza established his own political party, the Nationalist Liberal Party, with a hodgepodge of liberal and conservative party supporters. However, the party had one true policy, expanding Somoza's power. Over the next few years, Somoza steadily cemented his rule. Technically, he had been elected president at the end of 1936. He had the Constitution rewritten to allow the president to serve longer terms. And in 1938, he quote-unquote won re-election with 99% of the vote. Almost immediately, Somoza forged an authoritarian-style rule in Nicaragua. The U.S. State Department, meanwhile, described it as a repressive government characterized by farcical elections, constitutional violations, and negligible consideration of economic and social problems. But he was also explicitly pro-North America. So the U.S. stood back and watched their new guy do his thing. At least he sometimes made overtures to liberal leadership. For example, Somoza at times worked with the opposition. At the same time, he looked to expand within Nicaraguan society, including outreach to labor groups and business interests. Of course, when the carrot failed, Somoza was ready with the stick. Some political opponents were executed, but generally, Somoza preferred imprisonment and torture. The presidential palace contained a dungeon where a torture device called the Little Machine was often employed. It involved tying an electrical wire around a man's genitals. Violence assured Somoza's hold on power, and he used that power to increase his wealth. Somoza was never much of an ideologue. He was pro-capitalism and pro-U.S. because these positions kept him on top with plenty of cash. He was in many ways no different than Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. But he wanted to be the biggest of the kleptocrats, and so he mined every Nicaraguan resource he could for his own gain. For instance, he forbade cattle ranchers from moving their animals without a government permit. But since it took so long for a permit to be approved, most of the ranchers had to sell their stock to Somoza at rock-bottom prices. Somoza then exported the cattle on airplanes for huge profit. Ordinary Nicaraguans to him were little more than livestock. But Somoza failed to recognize the old adage that while a good shepherd shears his flock, he doesn't skin it. Eventually, Somoza would pay for his greed and cruelty. And then, Nicaragua would be inherited not by a shepherd, but by wolves. Coming up, Somoza's assassination ushers his two sons into the spotlight. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem, he was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After treacherously ordering the murder of rebel leader Augusto Sandino, the commander of the Nicaraguan National Guard, Anastasio Somoza Garcia, took control of the country in 1936. For the next 10 years, he systematically sidelined opposition and plundered Nicaragua in order to enrich himself, all with the tacit support of the United States. Though Washington was familiar with Somoza's crimes, they had no interest in removing him. In fact, the U.S. Embassy was next door to the president's residence. The American ambassador was even said to be the second most powerful man in Nicaragua, and sometimes the most powerful. After all, without Somoza's time in the U.S. and his ability to cozy up to American diplomats, he wouldn't be in a position of power at all. As such, it's little surprise that Somoza looked to prime both his sons for similar relationships. Luis Somoza de Baile and Anastasio Somoza de Baile, known as Tachito. Tachito especially took to American life. Tachito spent his youth attending some of the finest schools in America. He went to St. Leo's Prep School in Florida, and then later LaSalle Academy in New York. Like his father, in many ways, Tachito became more American than Nicaraguan. Unlike his father, Tachito didn't display great political acumen, but he did have the makings of a fine soldier. At 16, Tachito was made a special lieutenant of the Nicaraguan National Guard, and in 1942, he was promoted to captain. That same year, he enrolled at the military academy at West Point. Tachito returned to Nicaragua in 1946 and was soon promoted to major. At 21, he was the youngest major in the National Guard's short history. Naturally, however, many of Tachito's fellow officers in the Guard viewed him as spoiled and saw his successes as nepotistic. Not helping Tachito's cause was the fact that Spanish was a second language to him. Throughout his life, his speech would be peppered with Americanisms. Tachito did his best to win over the officers. He drank with them, boxed with them, and visited Managua's best brothels with them. But they never fully trusted him. He may have been the president's son, but he was still an outsider. Beyond an inability to forge relationships with his officers, Tachito had little understanding of how things worked in Nicaragua in general. Upon his return, he urged his father to abandon the presidency. After all, he pointed out, the people weren't happy. Instead of following his son's advice, Somoza threatened to arrest him. But Tachito was right. The Nicaraguan people were unhappy. A few government supporters had become millionaires, but most Nicaraguans were getting poorer. After 10 years in office, Somoza's personal fortune was in the ballpark of $120 million, or roughly $1.4 billion today. 
And when Samosa's term came to an end in early 1947, perhaps he remembered his son's words and decided to get out while he was ahead. Or at least decided to seem to get out. Instead of running for re-election, he put forward a puppet, Leonardo Arguello. 75% of the electorate voted against Arguello. But Samosa simply declared him the winner. Unfortunately, to Samosa's surprise and frustration, Arguello turned out to have a backbone. The day after his May 1st inauguration, Arguello began work to undermine Samosa. Though Samosa remained the commander of the National Guard, the new president reshuffled its organization in an attempt to diminish Samosa's influence. Tachito, for example, was the inspector general and commander of the presidential guard. But Arguello packed him up for the province of Lyon, about 60 miles from the capital. After filling his cabinet with men who were hostile towards Samosa, Arguello went in for the kill. He ordered Samosa to leave the country within 24 hours. Samosa considered his options, including doing as Arguello said and fleeing Nicaragua. On the evening of May 25, 1947, Arguello went to bed predicting his opponent would have no other decent options. But Samosa didn't flee. Instead, he gathered up every ally he could convince or scare into joining him. He did still have power in the National Guard. Then, that night, he sent 25 men and a tank to capture the National Palace. Perhaps awed by the name Samosa, the guards there surrendered without a fight. Within hours, Samosa forced Congress to declare Arguello mentally incompetent. And all while the president was still asleep. Only when Samosa had secured his position did he wake Arguello and inform him that he was now deposed. Arguello went into exile in Mexico, where he died before the year was out. Samosa was back on top. Of course, he'd learned his lesson. He increased repression of dissidents and installed his favorite uncle as the new president. This time, he'd make sure that he had a puppet who was 100% loyal to the family. But if Samosa was back on top at home, abroad, he was soon facing new problems with neighboring Costa Rica. In 1948, José Figueres Ferrer, called Don Pepe, overthrew the corrupt government of Rafael Ángel Calderón Guardia. A farmer who had graduated from MIT, Figueres vowed to clean up Costa Rica and turn it into a model Latin American country. He knew this extended to the shady business practices along the border with Nicaragua. For years, Samosa had made a fortune by smuggling cattle into Costa Rica in a money-making scheme with Calderon. With Vigueras in power, Samosa's smuggling operation would have to come to an end. Samosa was not pleased, but for now, he decided to let the feud simmer beneath the surface. There would be time for international conflicts in the years to come, but in the meantime, another passion was taking over his attention, farming. Samosa felt secure enough to officially give himself the presidency again in 1950. But as the early 1950s carried on, farming became almost an obsession for him. 
So much so that as he idled on his farms, more power was delegated to his sons, Luis and Tachito. Whether it was out of a pre-planned desire to pass everything on, or simply a practical result of surrounding himself with trustworthy family members, Samosa's family was looking increasingly like a dynasty. For Tachito, this meant a new position as chief of staff for the National Guard. Responsibility, however, didn't sober Tachito. He frequently partied all night at Managua's brothels. Whether or not this was still an attempt to win over fellow officers, the result was that he would be a hard drinker and partier for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, while Tachito was partying, his father was planning to cement the current status quo so that nothing would have to change for the rest of his life. It wouldn't. In 1955, Samosa amended the Constitution so that when his current term ended in two years, he could be re-elected once again. But that's not why he achieved his dream of power to the grave. He'd never lose power because he wouldn't live to see re-election. <laughs> On September 21st, 1956, Samosa was at the Casa del Obrero, a workers' club in Leon that was holding a reception in his honor. As Samosa rested from dancing the cha-cha, the young poet, Rigoberto Lopez Perez, walked up to him, drew a revolver, and shot him four times. Samosa's bodyguards shot and beat the poet to death on the dance floor, and then filled him with 35 bullets. Samosa lingered close to death. Surgeons spent four and a half hours removing the bullets from the caudillo's body. As death slowly approached, Samosa in folksy English reportedly muttered, I'm a goner. Even at the end, he was more American than Nicaraguan. A week after being shot, 60-year-old Anastasio Samosa Garcia died on September 28, 1956. On the night his father died, Luis Samosa de Baile, Tachito's older brother, called a session of Congress. He had himself declared acting president and announced his candidacy for the upcoming election. 30-year-old Tachito, meanwhile, launched an investigation into his father's murder. He decided, without any real evidence, that the poet-assassin had been a communist. With Cold War tensions on the rise, communists made for an easy scapegoat. As a result, some 3,000 Nicaraguans were arrested. Eventually, the number of suspects was reduced to 21. Five were found guilty of direct involvement in the assassination. Luis, though, promised at a political rally that their sentences would be light. Perhaps he wished to reassure worried Nicaraguans he would be less tyrannical than his father. The five men found guilty were sentenced to a few years in prison. All five, however, were eventually conveniently killed while, quote-unquote, trying to escape. Meanwhile, the official newspaper of the Samosa regime, Novedades, held a poetry contest to honor the late Samosa. It wasn't until several days after the newspaper had published the winning entry that someone noticed the first letter of each line of the poem spelled out the name of Samosa's assassin, Rigoberto Lopez. Luis took a hard look at the climate around him 
and came to the conclusion that his father's assassination was at least partially the result of his cruelty. Thus, he decided to liberalize the regime, to an extent. Some authority was delegated to cabinet ministers, and both Somoza brothers opened up to the press. While Luis took control of the government, Tachito used the National Guard to quash any dissent. To consolidate his hold on the Guard, Tachito dismissed many of his father's old cronies and replaced them with young, well-trained soldiers. Officers were given above-average housing, and illiterate recruits were taught to read and write. The country's illiteracy rate was around 80%. All soldiers received high pay, food, and medical care. Unable to ever fully mesh with the officers during his father's reign, Tachito decided he was going to win over the new men. He had meetings with at least 10 enlisted men a day, listening to their grievances. He also listened to the complaints of their girlfriends. Meanwhile, Tachito also built up the guards' resources. At the time, it lacked artillery. So it added several armed cars and three tanks from Israel to the usual routine armed shipments from the U.S. Every unit was equipped with a two-way radio that kept it in constant contact with Tachito. It was likely due to these reforms that the National Guard finally warmed up to Tachito. And although the force only numbered a few thousand, it was a lean, mean fighting unit. In time, Tachito could rely on its unwavering loyalty, even in the face of utter disaster. Consolidating power after their father's death had been the first real test. The brothers had passed, surprising most everyone. However, that didn't mean everyone in Nicaragua was suddenly in love with the Somoza brothers. In September 1958, a man named Ramon Rodales decided he was going to put an end to the Somoza dynasty. Rodales had been one of Augusto Sandino's lieutenants and among the few to escape after the legendary freedom fighter's murder. Inspired by Fidel Castro's ongoing guerrilla war against Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista, Rodales decided to try the same thing in Nicaragua. Picking up where Sandino had left off, Raudales led 40 men into the sparsely populated Nueva Segovia province. In response, Tachido transported his best anti-guerrilla soldiers to Nueva Segovia. A patrol caught up to Raudales, and during a gunfight, the aspiring revolutionary was shot in the head. Tachido was quite satisfied with himself. He seemed to have snuffed out the revolutionaries before they could even get rolling. Yet the Raudales attack planted a seed in Nicaragua, a seed which blossomed into a new generation of Sandinistas. Like something out of a Greek tragedy, Tachito would have to pay for the sins of his father. The specter of Augusto Sandino had returned, and it would refuse to leave until it got its revenge on the entire Somoza family. Coming up, Tachito fights his first skirmishes with the Sandinistas and convinces his brother that it's his turn to lead Nicaragua. Now back to the story. After Anastasio Somoza Garcia's assassination in 1956, his two sons, Luis Somoza de Baile 
and Anastasio Tachido Somoza de Baile managed to consolidate power in Nicaragua while seemingly winning over the masses with a few liberal reforms. They also made short work of Ramon Raudales's revolutionary movement. Unfortunately for the brothers, however, while Rodales himself was quickly defeated, the example he set proved far more enduring. Emboldened by Raudales and Castro's success in Cuba, another guerrilla army formed in early 1959. It was led by Enrique Lacayo Farfan, a gynecologist, and Pedro Joaquin Chamorro. The Chamorro family was among the oldest and most influential families in Nicaragua, long champions of the conservative party. The two rebel leaders snuck a force of 112 men into Nicaragua to set up training camps and waited. Finally, on May 30th, the rebels decided to kick off their coup, making their way through the Nicaraguan countryside. The rebels, however, overestimated how much rural Nicaraguans desired another revolution especially considering that their leaders lacked the charisma of earlier Nicaraguan guerrillas like Augusto Sandino. Unable to gather support from the people, the revolution stalled. And when word of the threat reached Tachito's ears, he responded with ruthless competence. After a mere 15 days, the coup was all over. The surviving 103 rebels surrendered. Following a relatively lengthy trial, all were found guilty and sentenced to eight years' imprisonment. However, Luis decided to be merciful and granted them all pardons. Most likely, he was trying to alleviate public resentment against the regime. Poor rural Nicaraguans hadn't given much support to the rebels, but in the capital, many still hated the regime. Luis seemed intent on extending an olive branch. It didn't work. In July 1960, students from the University of Lyon began an impromptu demonstration, throwing stones at a local guard post. Someone, either a student or a guard, suddenly fired. Though we don't know who shot the first round, we know who shot the bloodiest. Guards fired into the crowd, killing five students and wounding 30 others. Luis rushed medicine to Lyon, but no one was placated. In the eyes of the public, the regime had massacred students. Tensions rose throughout the country, and before long, a new generation of guerrillas took up arms against the Somoza brothers. By his own estimation, by 1961, Tachido claimed to have ended 27 attempted revolts. He didn't seem at all disturbed by the growing unrest, however. In fact, he seemed to grow increasingly confident with each failed rebellion. So when he first received reports of a small group of rebels claiming the mantle of Sandino, he thought them little different from the others. Little did he realize that this new Sandinista group would become his mortal enemy. On July 23, 1961, the Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional the FSLN, or Sandinista National Liberation Front, was born. The founders consisted of 26-year-old Carlos Fonseca Amador, 25-year-old Silvio Mayorga, and 30-year-old Tomas Borges. 
All three already had years of experience in student protest movements and armed guerrilla struggle. Their goal was not only to topple the Samosas, but to transform Nicaragua into a more equitable, socialist, and democratic society. But their first foray into revolution went about as well as other attempts to unseat the Samosas. After getting lost in the mountains for several days, one group ran into a National Guard patrol. Silvio Mayorga was shot in the leg. A few others were killed, and the Sandinistas decided to retreat. Setting aside the hope of armed revolution for now, Tomas Borges slipped back into Nicaragua and decided to focus on political activity. He made an alliance with the Socialist Party and organized rural communities into demanding better roads and clean water. For the time being, the Sandinistas were still small fry, but the whole country seemed to be getting rowdier. In 1962, the Somoza-controlled Congress passed a resolution which declared that anyone associated with a subversive radio broadcast, including technicians and advertising sponsors, would face heavy fines. As legislators prepared to vote on the measure, a crowd of protesters entered the Congress building, where the Somosas were expecting them. A group of 80 pro-Samosa gangsters were waiting with knives, sticks, and pistols. A fight ensued in the Congress building, injuring 35. Ultimately, the protesters fled, and Congress passed the resolution. Luisa's attempts to liberalize the country were falling flat, and it seemed as if the Samosas were hardening their regime into an autocracy in the style of their father. Hopes for democratic reform were dashed by Luis's refusal to allow the United Nations or the Organization of American States to observe the upcoming 1963 elections. The Conservative Party boycotted the elections, recognizing that they would be rigged from the start. Still, Luis had promised not to make himself president. Instead, he put forward a former education and foreign affairs minister, René Schick, he envisioned a dictatorship of the party, where the Somoza-dominated Nationalist Liberal Party would simply change out puppet presidents every election cycle. Which alienated yet another person, Tachito. He wanted to be president. But for now, older brother Luis got his way, and Schick, quote-unquote, won the election. Few Nicaraguans were pleased with the election results. Protests and violence broke out, although as usual, they were successfully suppressed by the regime. Washington, on the other hand, voiced its approval of Schick's election. The recent success of Castro in Cuba had unnerved Washington, and it was intent on preventing Castro from exporting the revolution to other nations in Latin America. The Somosas were happy to help wherever they could, and soon, they got a prime chance to show it. In 1961, Dominican Republic dictator Rafael Trujillo was assassinated, and the inept reign of his son sent the island nation into civil war. Fearing a second Cuba in 1965, President Johnson sent U.S. Marines to the Dominican Republic. Tachido, looking to please the Americans, dispatched 1,200 Nicaraguan troops to support the invasion. 
His bid for friendship worked. The Samosa's relationship with the U.S. strengthened. Everything seemed to be on the upswing for the Samosas. The economy was expanding, profiting the family more than anyone else in the country. Following in the footsteps of their father, the sons appropriated state funds, skimmed off the top, and strong-armed others into favorable business deals. Their personal fortune amounted to about 10% of the Nicaraguan GDP. Meanwhile, on the guerrilla front, most of the dissident activity had seemingly petered out. In fact, Sandinista leader Carlos Fonseca was captured and exiled to Mexico. Things were running so smoothly that Tachito felt it was time to bring up his bid for president once again. Luis still didn't like it, but this time he decided to step aside and let it happen, perhaps in the name of keeping the family peace. In August 1966, Tachito accepted the Nationalist Liberal Party's nomination for the presidency. Though the Constitution necessitated that he step down as official commander of the National Guard, he remained de facto in control of it. Of course, the election would be rigged, but the opposition still decided to fight back. The conservative, independent, liberal, and Christian Democratic parties formed a coalition called the Union Nacional de Oposición, or UNO. They put forward a man named Dr. Fernando Aguero Rochas as their candidate. On January 22, 1967, 60,000 UNO supporters gathered in the capital and listened as Dr. Aguero called for a national strike. The crowd then marched toward the National Palace and the guard fired on them. Approximately 40 opposition members were killed alongside three soldiers. Still, the opposition didn't scatter. A large group converged on the Grand Hotel across the street from the National Palace. There, they took the hotel staff and 117 foreign guests hostage. A tank soon appeared on the street and fired into the crowd. One shell struck the hotel, while another missed the building completely and destroyed a nearby barbershop. Eventually, Catholic clergymen and U.S. embassy officials stepped in to negotiate a truce. The opposition members were allowed to leave peacefully provided they left their weapons behind. They agreed. But tensions remained high, and in the days leading up to the presidential election, sporadic violence between protesters and soldiers continued to break out. In the end, though, the opposition was all for naught. On February 5th, 41-year-old Anastasio Tachito Somoza de Baile won the election. It seemed as if the Samosa family was there to stay, now with Tachito in control. But no sooner had happiness filled Tachito when tragedy suddenly struck. While on a visit to the U.S., Tachito received some shocking news. On April 8th, 44-year-old Luis suffered a massive heart attack, dying five days later. Surely Tachito must have felt deep grief at the sudden death of his elder brother. Perhaps a tinge of unease in the knowledge that he was now alone and had to manage a turbulent country by himself. Luis had never been beloved. 
but his attempts at liberalization, while limited, had at least made him more popular than Tachito. The younger brother was only known for imprisoning people and having protesters shot. Still, Tachito may have even felt some relief or excitement. No other individual in Nicaragua could now hope to compete with his power. With no authority figures left to constrain him, Tachito was free to rule Nicaragua as he saw fit. He must have felt that no one could stop him. The Sandinistas felt differently. Though their activity had gone dormant, they were determined that there would be no more samosas in power. Tachito and the Sandinistas were on a collision course, and their conflict would be so violent, so destructive, that it would turn virtually all of Nicaragua into a devastated wasteland. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore how the cataclysmic 1972 Nicaragua earthquake set into motion a series of events which would topple the Somoza dynasty. Among the many sources we used, we found Somoza and the Legacy of U.S. Involvement in Central America by Bernard Diederich extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>